If you have not already, would you turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1. Father, we do ask that you would help us with your word before us. We ask for the aid of your spirit. We ask that you would accomplish your purposes for which you have sent your word forth and that you would magnify your son here that we might see him and hear him by faith. Amen. Who is she really? Or what is he like close up behind the scenes for everyone to really know? How many uh, grocery store magazines or tell-all biographies have you seen promising to give you the real access to a certain celebrity or athlete or politician so that you might know this is the real them? This is the story that you need to know. Those sort of stories and books continue to sell because we have a thirst sometimes just out of curiosity Sometimes out of real need to know someone's identity. Sometimes it's just fascination. And other times there is this genuine need to know who are they really. And what is the truth about Jesus? Of all the biographies we could read, of all the narratives and all the exposés that we might ever give our time to, what is the real truth about Jesus? Who is he? What do I need to know about him? Well, thankfully, the gospel of Mark has been given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we might know who this Jesus is. The very Christ that we have sung about and sung to this morning, that if we have prayed to and even closed our prayers saying, in Jesus' name, what does that mean? Why do we do that? And if you're visiting here or you're curious about what that might mean, this is especially important for you. According to first century church writings, the Gospel of Mark is the account of Simon Peter. It's the account of Simon Peter written down by John Mark through the aid of the Holy Spirit. So keeping that in mind, if you even think of Uh, Simon Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 10 where he testifies of the gospel of Christ. Keep his his sermon in mind. It kind of serves as almost a helpful outline of thinking through his account of who this Jesus is as John Mark writes it down for us. But really within Peter's mind and in Mark's gospel, there is one overarching question that sits at the very center of this gospel account. And you find it in chapter 8. Because Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? Really in the very center of Mark's gospel, chapter 8 of 16 chapters, we find this question put before the disciples and essentially Mark's gospel to recast that same question, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? And Mark's gospel exists that we might lay our understanding of who Jesus is alongside the actual testimony from God of who Jesus is. No wonder then it is actually the opening clause of Mark's gospel. Did you notice that? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What we find then in the pages of Mark's gospel is the formation of these numerous accounts of Jesus that are 
often clipped and fast-moving, not necessarily in chronological order, but thematically put together so that we might walk away and be able to say with Simon Peter or with the centurion in chapter 15, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's the very reason why we have this gospel account so that we would be pausing to ask ourselves, who do I say that Jesus is? Is the Jesus that the scriptures portray the one that I'm worshiping, or is it some Jesus of my imagination? Is it some Jesus of some man-made tradition, or is it the Jesus according to God's own tradition that's given to us in his word? Am I following Jesus as he intended, or just my interpretation of how I think someone should follow Jesus? Am I expecting that his kingdom will come as he taught? Or do I have my own interpretation of what it means for his kingdom to come? You see, all of these questions are pulled up together and presented for us that we might find the answers to who is Jesus here in Mark's gospel. Now, I recognize you may have never thought along these lines, or this might be the 500th time you've come to the gospel of Mark. It really doesn't matter. Because the word of God is the same, and it testifies of the same Christ. And regardless, what better subject could we give our attention to as God's people? So it's my desire and my plan, by God's aid, we'll spend about 25 to 30 weeks considering the gospel of Mark as we make our way through what God has given to us. And just like any good story, it really begins with a prologue kind of an introduction of sorts that is going to set the stage for everything that's going to follow in the the next 16 chapters. And this prologue, it could be summed up in two words. Good news. Good news. Everything that you're about to hear, Mark says, has to do with this good news that is Jesus Christ. Not Jesus, last name Christ, but Jesus' title, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, and he is the son of God. Mark wants us to know by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is good news for you this morning, and it has everything to do with this one that we call Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. And so what I want to do this morning is look at these first 15 verses, and what we're going to see is that it is, number one, it's good news as the scriptures have promised, It's good news that actually has a surprising purpose. And lastly, it's good news that our Savior proclaimed. Good news that the scriptures promised with a surprising purpose that our Savior proclaimed. Look back at verse 1 and 2 as we consider what Mark says here, that this was actually good news just as the scriptures promised. And it is most certainly good. But what he wants us to see is that it's not new. This is good news, but this really isn't new news because it's actually been foretold and promised and anticipated throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is the fulfillment of what has actually been promised throughout the revelation of God seen all the way through the scriptures. Verses 2 and 3, Mark says, just as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, this is good news according to a promised message. 
Mark's opening sentence is really just elaborated upon by expounding and affirming that the beginning of this good news that I'm about to tell you about actually finds its anchor and its waypoint back in the unfolding revelation of God. And he says specifically in Isaiah, and we read of Jesus and hear of his words and works, we are meant to hear them as a fulfillment of a promise. What we hear in Mark's gospel is actually the fulfillment of the very thing that has been promised throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So specifically, Mark points us to the prophet Isaiah. But in doing this, he's actually pointing us to three places. Because what he quotes and what he references you can find in Exodus 23, Malachi 3, and then Isaiah 40. He says Isaiah, but really the, it's, he's getting his hands around something that's said in numerous places in the Old Testament. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if this unfolding good news is in the scriptures, that it's going to be progressively revealed throughout redemptive history. And the book of Isaiah essentially holds up this broader vision, this great promise of what God is going to do for his people by his son. Or to put it this way, the good news has been promised in the Old Testament, but it's unmistakable in Isaiah. It's so explicit in the book of Isaiah. If you've ever taken time to read through it, and study it, you'll see how it is really just the, the entire scriptures in, in a narrative. There's, there's coming judgment, but the promise of redemption, the promise of restoration of all things, and it is this gospel arc that runs throughout all of Isaiah's prophecy. And so Mark says, I'm going to tell you about this good news in Jesus, and it's just like what you've read in Isaiah. And by this, we should just recognize how helpful the book of Isaiah is to become really a lens to help us interpret the book of Mark. Because this is not the only time that Isaiah's prophecy stands as the illumination upon Mark's gospel to help us read and understand, because you'll hear references, almost word-for-word -word allusions to the book of Isaiah. You'll hear Isaiah 40, 42, 53, 60, 65, that, that, that Peter, through Mark by the Holy Spirit, is retelling this understanding that everything that I'm saying, this is right here in the book of Isaiah. In fact, turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is where this portion is taken from. Let's look at the broader context to see how this good news has actually been promised in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather together the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. All that to say, rejoice. God is faithful to his word. The grass withers, the flower may fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And how often we need to hear this when we come to God's word. How often we need to be reminded of this in our waiting, in our trial, in our hardship or difficulties. Jesus Christ has come, and it is good news according to the promise of the scriptures. But Mark goes on, and then verses 4 through 8, it's not just a promised message. There's actually in this a promised messenger. That's what he describes in verses 4 through 8. Keeping in mind the original context of Isaiah 40, it's actually promised within this sense of a, what you could call a new exodus for God's people. If you remember the context there of Israel in Isaiah 40, that Yahweh would return triumphantly, that he would lead God's people out from this captivity in Babylon, back into the promised land, establish them, and that they would be fruitful. It's kind of a retelling of the same Exodus story out of Egypt. God said, I'll be your deliverer. I'll rescue you. I will bless you and keep you. I will put my name upon you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And within Isaiah, we are told that this promised deliverance, ultimate deliverance, would be set off by a messenger. Someone that would come and prepare the way. He will prepare the way for the work of this great deliverer. The deliverer will come, but first the messenger. And the messenger's job is to make sure that the people are ready for this Messiah, for this great deliverer. And so if we're going to understand the following events here in Mark's prologue, he wants us to think in categories of deliverance and restoration that will begin by a forerunner who comes before the deliverer who will prepare the way for this king. And so Mark, what he does is he sets the ministry of John the Baptist in the context of the fulfillment of Scripture and this coming renewal. He says, good news Just like the scriptures promised, and just as they promised, there would be a forerunner. And let me tell you about John. All of this is happening just as the scriptures have promised. And so the emphasis, the images, the tone of John is meant to point us backwards. Not only by the promises that are made and the announcement are made, but by the message, messenger himself. Here's what I mean. If you grew up in a Jewish home, hearing the stories of the prophets, hearing the promises of God's word, and hearing the teaching of the scriptures in the synagogue, you would have looked at John the Baptist, and you would have said, that guy looks familiar. He sounds familiar. Prophet out in the wilderness, hairy coat, belt, calling people to prepare themselves to repent. This I've seen this somewhere. Mark says, yes, you have. He's the messenger. He comes in the spirit of Elijah, just as Jesus would confirm in Mark chapter 9. 
He comes just as Elijah came in 2 Kings chapter 1. And so the primary means by which John called the people to prepare themselves, not to open their checkbooks, not to get dressed up and look all pretty, but he called them to prepare themselves by repenting. He called them to acknowledge their need, their greatest need, which had to do with their sins. And through the recognition of this sin, John says, prepare yourself for the king. John the Baptist preached the need for repentance, which just means to turn back, implying that whoever he was preaching to, they had assumed they were going in the right direction, assumed that they were thinking along the right lines, assumed that they understood what was happening in the temple, and John says, you need to change your understanding. You need to turn back. You need to repent. Even if they claimed to be the people of God who lived in Jerusalem and Judea, even if they worshipped at the temple, they were called to return to the Lord by publicly confessing their sin and affirming this by stepping into the Jordan for John's baptism. And as we'll see, this emphasis upon repentance is central to our understanding of why this is good news. But John not only preached repentance, he really preached in reverence because he testified of someone greater than himself, someone more powerful, someone of much greater importance, so much so that he said, I'm not even worthy to be the most menial servant of this one who is to come. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. His greatness far far surpasses any greatness that you might think I have. Okay, so do you see what Mark is doing here in this gospel? He has announced that everything he's going to say has to do with Jesus the Messiah, who's the Son of God, and then he anchors that announcement in the Old Testament scriptures. He anchors it in the promise of the Old Testament scriptures. What he's saying is that the good news about Jesus finds its context within our Old Testament, the first 39 books of your Bible. Do you know what that means? That means the first 39 books of your Bible are really important. They're not just fodder to hit a certain word count so that we can then get to the New Testament. Mark wants us to see if you want to understand this good news, understand it's what's been promised in the Old Testament. Because there in the Old Testament, we find these promises. They're fulfilled in the New. But the expectation and the the outlining of this promise is given to us in the Old Testament. The gospel that is expounded in the New Testament is the same gospel contained in our Old Testament. Perhaps you're familiar with Paul's Closing words in 1 Corinthians 15 about the gospel being a matter of first importance. And we love that portion of scripture because especially in a context in a world where the gospel gets muddled or the church begins to think this is what's most important, we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul says, I want to remind you of a matter of first importance that I preach the gospel to you. And what does he say the gospel is? which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according to the scriptures. He was not talking about the gospels. He was not talking about the book of Acts or the epistles. 
he is talking about the very same context that Mark is writing in Isaiah, the Old Testament. Christ died for our sins according to the promises of our Old Testament. Why do I push this, belabor this? Do you want to grow in your understanding of the New Testament? Then give time to read your Old Testament alongside it. Let me put it this way. Do you want to enrich your understanding of hearing about the atonement that we have in Christ, seeing him as prophet, as priest, as king? Then you'll be greatly helped by reading your Old Testament. Do you want to add color and tone and and texture as you hear about justification and a lamb slain before the foundation of the world? You'll find help there in your Old Testament as you read it alongside your New Testament. It gives to us the very anchor and bedrock for the great announcement that becomes explicit there in the New Testament. Mark says this is good news that has been promised according to the scriptures. But he goes on, back in Mark chapter 1, what we see is that this is good news with a surprising purpose. Any good story has to have a surprise. There has to be something that you say, I didn't see that coming. That's not the way I thought that would go. And what Mark does in this very first chapter is To those who would say, oh, yes, it's according to the promise. It's according to the scriptures, exactly what I would expect. He says, no, this is good news that has a surprise, a surprise in its purpose. We love to tell stories and to listen or to watch stories about deliverers. We love this sort of narrative from classical Greek to Scottish legends to our modern American stories. We love to write and to listen to a tale about a rescuer who comes to defeat evil, to restore goodness, and rescue his people. We love that narrative arc. This good news that concerns Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but this good news has a surprising twist. It has a surprising twist in how Jesus goes about actually delivering people. Because he is unlike any other Savior that we might imagine or write about. This good news has a surprising purpose as Jesus came to stand in the place of sinners, to the pleasure of the Father, to pass a test that others fail. Let's unpack that for a second. The surprise is that Jesus came to stand in the place of sinners, Look down at verse 9 and 10. Those, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart, torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 9 It is meant to be as the record scratch within the narration. Everything that you just heard about John being in the wilderness, preparing the people, calling them to repent, being baptized upon their confession of their sins. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized in the Jordan. Mark, I thought this was about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, 
the great rescuer and the first surprises that you're telling me is that he's actually come to stand in the place of sinners? That he comes actually to the very same waters, uh, the people next to him that are confessing sin and identifying as sinners? John the Baptist been calling people to repent and where is the great you know, hero of the story, where does it pan upon him? In the Jordan River, surrounded by sinners, literally numbered among the transgressors? What kind of hero is this? What kind of rescuer is this? John is preaching, and Jesus lines up right alongside everybody who else is saying, I'm a sinner. I need help. We are meant to ask, what kind of deliverer is this? I don't think that's how I would deliver people. I don't think that's how I would save people who need saving. This is not the kind of story you or I would write. Central to the person of Jesus and understanding why this is good news is to see that Jesus is the sort of sinner, Savior who comes to stand in the place of sinners. Jesus is the sort of Savior who stands and identifies with sinners. Because by participating in John's baptism, Jesus identifies with God's people as their representative. I want you to know, before I say anything, heal anybody, preach anything, I have come to identify with sinners. That's the first thing Jesus does. As the Messiah, Jesus enters into the means by which God's people are purified, being counted, numbered among the transgressors. And all of this, it points to the vicarious or the substitutionary nature of the way in which God will save his people. The Spirit teaches us through Mark's gospel that if we would know anything about Jesus, we must first see that he is a rescuer who delivers his people not by telling them what to do, but by standing in their place. That is how he's going to accomplish this great deliverance that's been promised throughout all of Scripture. This is the sort of deliverer that you want to know. That he actually comes and stands next to the very people who say, I need deliverance. But he's not only doing this, as John says here, to stand in the place of sinners. But verse 11, we're told that he does it to the pleasure of the Father. He does it to the pleasure of the Father. That's the announcement, the voice that comes from heaven. In this exact moment, as Christ comes out of the water, we're told that the heavens are torn open. Again, Isaiah 60, rend the heavens and come down, Lord. Heavens are torn open. The spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven, a divine voice breaks in upon this whole scene saying, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The timing nor the references should not be missed. This anointed Messiah is shown here to be the one who will live in total dependence upon the father by the spirit. And this descent of the Spirit is the affirmation of Jesus' identity and his empowerment for messianic service. The Spirit and the voice, they are loaded with significance. 
Did you catch what the Father says about Jesus? This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. Considering what we've been working through and reading through in the Psalms, even in recent weeks, does any of that sound familiar? Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. A reference to Psalm chapter 2 and that how the Lord, the Father, sets his anointed one upon his throne and says, that is my son. That is my son right there. And my means to rule my people and rescue them will come from his reign. And here at the baptism, as he gets out of the water, behold, this is my son. You are my son. But he says not only you are my son, the father speaks of his pleasure in the son. Again, the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The spirit-empowered servant of the Lord is identified as God's chosen one to the pleasure of the Father. So in the larger context of Isaiah's servant songs, this one, same servant right here, he's going to give himself as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And right here at this baptism, he ascends out of the water, the spirit descends, and the voice affirms everything that has been promised in the Old Testament. We read this, we hear this, we're meant to ask, what kind of Messiah is this? The sort of Messiah that identifies with sinners to the delight of the Father. That's the first thing John or that Mark would want us to see. So can I ask you, have you understood the person and ministry of Jesus Christ in this light? Jesus comes as a Savior to stand in the place of sinners. That is how he saves. That is how he rescues. He stands where you should be so that you can be forgiven. That is the entire image that is being set for us as we consider everything else that Christ will do. And all of this is according to the pleasure of the Father. Think back to Isaiah 53. But it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. Church, what this means is that God's work to redeem his people was not done grudgingly or reluctantly. This was done to the good pleasure of the Father. He delights to have mercy. Our Father delights to save his people. It pleases him to see the Son step in to the place of sinners. And the Son rejoices to honor the Father by delivering his people, by identifying with them in their sin. This is the way God saves his people to the glory of God, to the delight of the Father and the joyful obedience of the Son. It is God's means. And a part of why we gather each Sunday morning is to remind ourselves of this fact, to rejoice in it, and to proclaim it to all who would listen. 
that the Father sends the Son to stand in the place of his people to the delight of the Father and the joyful obedience of the Son. God loves to save sinners. That is what Mark says in the very onset of this gospel. The surprise, not only that it's to the pleasure of the Father, but in verses 12 and 13, the surprise is also that he passed the test that others failed. Look back at verse 12. After this, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. As the Spirit is now empowering Christ for for ministry, Mark makes this explicit language to show the reason that Jesus ended up in the wilderness. The same Spirit that descended upon him drives him now into this wilderness for 40 days. Mark is explicit because he wants us to show that if we would make any, any sense of this wilderness temptation, we need to understand something. It was the Spirit of God driving the Son of God there according to the pleasure of God. All of this that is happening is a part of God's plan. Now, the wilderness is significant because it was a place of testing. It was a place of testing specifically for Israel. Jesus' 40 days ought to sound familiar, analogous to the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, I've sent you there to test you, to see if you would trust me or not. And here Jesus is driven into the wilderness for 40 days. And although Israel repeatedly failed through disobedience and unbelief, What we read here is that Jesus succeeds by obeying and trusting his Father. He succeeds where others have failed. But not only Israel. There was another who stood as a representative of God's people. Another actual son of God. Someone created in the very image of God. His name is Adam. Adam, charged by God to stand in a place, to rule, to keep, given a charge by God. And this Adam, standing as a representative for all of humanity, failed. He was expected to do so, everything that God gave to him in obedience, by trusting in God's word. The word that God gave to Adam, he was to respond in obedience so that we would know life. And Adam, made in the image of God, referred to as the Son of God, failed. This failure in testing had eternally massive impact upon the rest of the story. Because Adam stood as our federal head, our representative for all humanity, and by his failure, he plunged all the earth under this curse of sin. See, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 5 about this first Adam and this second Adam. Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam failed. Keep reading your Bible. Here's Noah. Noah failed. 
Here's the judges. Failed, failed, failed. Kings and Chronicles. This king rose up, lived. He kind of followed the Lord. He kind of didn't. He died. This king rose up. He didn't follow the Lord at all. He was the worst king ever. He died. This king rose up. He died. He died. He died. By the time you come to the end of 2 Chronicles, what you are convinced of as you read from Genesis to there is that there has never been an anointed leader who reigns and is successful to obey God faithfully, to defend God's people, and to bring about the righteousness that God demands. And Mark steps up and he says, good news. I have good news. The anointed Messiah has come. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the Son of God. He has been tested. He has been tried, and he's approved. He has not failed where others have. He was driven into the wilderness, tempted by Satan. And as Mark will go on to show, Jesus has authority over Satan. Jesus has authority over Satan, over sin, and over death. This is why it is so important to read the Gospels understanding that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the true and greater Adam who proves himself to be the faithful son who lives in perfect obedience and by his life we are saved. That's Romans 5.14. Because Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And so as you read the Gospel of Mark, please beware Beware of making it all about you. We love to find ourselves. I guarantee you, the next group picture that you're in, I know who you're looking for first. Don't say it's your kids or your wife. We love to look at ourselves. But as you read the story of Mark, remember, yes, it most certainly concerns you. But ultimately, this story is about Jesus. This story is about how Jesus is the second Adam who succeeded where others failed, who came to stand in the place of sinners to deliver God's people by God's means. This is most certainly the promised deliverer, and he's therefore worthy to be trusted in. This is especially good news for sinners. This is especially good news for people who have come to realize, I cannot fix myself. This is especially good news for people who realize this world cannot be fixed by any of us. This is good news because it's according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is precisely where Mark goes. It's not only the, the good news here that was promised. It's not only the good news that has a surprising purpose. It is also the good news that our Savior proclaimed. Look down at verse 14. This, is, this good news is about what God has done. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark is very careful to note that the gospel that was proclaimed was whose gospel? God's gospel, meaning it's all about God and what God has done. He says, good news, Jesus has come. Let me tell you who he is. And Jesus began to stand up, and he began to proclaim more good news. And this good news is actually the same good news because it's God's good news. It's the good news 
of the gospel. Please notice the emphasis here is upon God and his good work. Be very careful that you keep the message of the gospel and the implications of the gospel distinct. Don't roll them together. Because everywhere that scripture announces this good news and then unpacks what it is, it has to do with the triune God and what he has done. Do you remember how Paul opens his address to the church at Rome? Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning the Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a Trinitarian declaration of what God has done according to the scriptures. Jesus comes to Galilee and he begins to proclaim the good news of what God has done. Don't miss this. It is news, not advice. It is an announcement of what God has done, not an encouragement or a step or a plan or advice. He does not announce a program for renewal. He does not announce a three-step plan to follow. Christ walks into Galilee and declares what God has done to accomplish salvation. I cannot stress to you the absolute importance of having clarity on what the gospel is and by definition what it's not. Could you tell me, tell a friend, tell a coworker the gospel in 60 seconds? Could you summarize this good news in one sentence? If that's all you were given, could you do it? What would you say? Where would you start? The gospel is the good news about what God has done through Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. It's very simple and yet so profound. It concerns God. And that's why we say it concerns God because he's the one and only God, the holy God who created all things and made us to know him. But as you unfold this gospel, you have to talk about man and recognize that the scriptures teach that we sinned, we disobeyed, we cut ourselves off from him. And from birth, all people are alienated to God, from God, hostile to God, subject to the wrath of God. We are in a horrible condition because of who God is and because of who we are. And then we say, but Christ. In his great love, God sent his son, Jesus, to come as king and rescue his people from their enemies, their greatest enemy, most significantly, their own sin. Jesus lived this perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness. He died a sacrificial death. He rose from the dead, showing that God accepted this sacrifice and that God's wrath against sin has been exhausted. It is done. This is God's gospel. It's what God has done through Jesus Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. But notice, 
because this gospel is an announcement of what God has done, and it's an indictment against us in our sin, Jesus also preached for a response. This is news about what God has done, but it is most certainly news that demands a response. Because look at verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Notice that this preaching included an indicative and an imperative, or an announcement and a command. The announcement, time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. The announcement of the gospel does not just hang in the air like pixie dust. It demands a response. It demands something of us to hear and to respond. It's news that says, what will you do with this news? What will you do with this great announcement? And what Jesus says is that we are to repent and believe. Two very important words in our Bibles. Because repent just means that you agree with God and who he is, and you agree with him as to who he says you are. And you turn around. You say, I had it all backwards. I thought I was God and you served me. I thought I was the king and you made my life better. You agree with God as to who he is and all of his holiness, all his authority and his goodness. And you agree with him as to who he says you are, a sinner in need of a savior. You repent and you believe. You cast your soul upon this great announcement, the warnings and the promises you accept receive and rest everything that concerns Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. But even as you hear this, repent and believe, do not separate what God has joined together. You hear that at marriage ceremonies? You need to hear it in the preaching of the gospel. Do not separate what God has joined together. Do not think of repentance and belief as two disjointed actions. If you were at the Law Gospel Seminar this weekend, you're nodding, you're thinking, oh, I I heard this. This is really important. Do not think of repentance as a stage and then belief as a stage. Do not hear that God calls you to get everything right, figured out, cleaned up, washed, repent, repent, repent enough, repent high enough, repent zealous enough, repent long enough, and then believe. That is not what Jesus is teaching, nor what the scriptures proclaim anywhere. The scriptures teach that repentance takes place within the context of faith's grasp as we believe in Jesus Christ. We can never divide faith and repentance, but we do distinguish. Probably the most helpful thing you can hear is to say that they are the two aspects of the same reality. What Jesus calls us to do is to repent believingly and believe repentantly. They are distinct but they're not separate. Repent and believe. Believe and repent. Repent believing in what you have heard. And believe, repent in what you have heard. Belief and repentance then ought to be these well-worn paths of every follower of Christ. These are not one-time events that you just enter through at the moment of conversion. 
This is the very tone and posture and delight of every follower of Christ. Belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. Luther was so convinced of this that it stood as the core of his concern for the church and was a part of his 95 theses. The very first of these was our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. He says, we need to talk about this because we've gotten completely crazy. We've missed the entire emphasis of Scripture. Now, as you hear that, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. That may sound very depressing to you. That may sound very morose to you. But you would have misunderstood Luther's point entirely. He was saying that repentance is actually the way that we move through or progress through the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are actually growing in grace and that the wonder of the gospel is beginning to permeate and saturate our souls because we understand how good this good news is, how good this God is, how gracious this merciful is, and how much I need forgiveness of sin. So all of life becomes repentance as I hear all of my life in need of the gospel of grace. As good as the gospel is and as it sinks in, the quicker and more often we respond in repentance. For we hear his word, and we recognize that where our thinking, our responses, our affections, our actions, wherever they are a distortion of what God has called good, we repent and believe. Our confession, the second London, chapter 15, paragraph 3, repentance must continue throughout our lives because the body of death and its activities So it's everyone's duty to repent of each specific known sin specifically. Basically, as long as we sin, we respond in belief and repentance, looking to the Savior. Each time God's word is read, it's preached, proclaimed, it demands a response. Each Sunday that we gather together as God's people, we are called to respond It does not say here, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're hearing the gospel, just sit tight, let the pagans respond, and then we'll get back to business. Nor does it say, hey, this is just a pep talk for the Christians, so for you visitors, sit tight, and we'll get over to coffee in a second. What it says is that this is for all who hear. This is for all of creation. Christ is among us here this morning, By his word and spirit, he proclaims again the gospel of God. That is what is happening right now, is God's word is read and preached. The fullness of time has come. The kingdom is at hand because the king has come. Jesus is this God-sent rescuer to rule over his people. He's come to identify with sinners, and yet he's without sin. He has the approval of the Father and the anointing of the Spirit. This is the the gospel of God. So as you hear this, even again this morning, the response is the same. Look and live. Hear and believe. Christ is the provision of the Father to save his people. 
And through Mark's gospel, we're going to continue to hear how he has come to suffer many things, to die and to rise again, so that we can, with one voice, say, Amen. This is the gospel of God. Why would he do this? What kind of Messiah would ever consider this? Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You will not make sense of the gospel of Mark apart from that. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Good news, church. What God has promised, God has accomplished. That is the, God, the gospel of God that is given to us and for us. Father, we rejoice to hear that this announcement of our greatest need has been satisfied by your greatest provision. Lord, how often and how frequently, how clearly and how loudly we need to have this impressed upon our minds and our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray you would continue to grow us in the gospel so that we might have a greater appreciation, greater worship of who you are, that we might see you as you are, that we might rightly see ourselves as we are. Lord, grow us in our joy and our rejoicing to hear that you've come not to tell us how to be saved, but that you've come to accomplish salvation, that you've stood in our place, receiving the approval of the Father, the anointing of the Spirit. Jesus, we pray that you would continue to seek and to save, to strengthen your church, to call her out, to equip her, build her, and send us, Lord, that we might continue to proclaim this great message. Lord, would you shape our lives by it, our homes, our marriages? Would you shape our relationships to one another as fellow members, the way we relate to parents and to children, the way we even winsomely seek out our neighbors and those that you've placed around us? Lord, cause your gospel to have great clarity in these days. Keep us from the muddling of the the whole message that would empty it of any power and cause us to grow and wonder that it is not just information, that it's not just doctrine detached from a God or from his people, but it is you, that we behold our God when we behold the gospel. Continue to work among us for your purposes, we pray. Amen.